Good morning, gentlemen. Today we turn to a sometimes a neglected book of the Bible, but a very important one. It's the letter of James to uh, some Jewish Christians, and you'll find it on page 2391 in your ESV study Bible. This, uh, this year in Amen, we want to study primarily what we call the Catholic epistles. That doesn't mean Roman Catholic as in a denomination, but it means rather universal epistles. They're written to a broad group, not just to one city like Paul's letter to Corinth or Paul's letter to the Romans or Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's written in general, so they're called Catholic epistles. So you have uh, James and First and Second Peter and First and Second Third John and Jude, and we're going to study all of those except First and Second Peter because we studied those just a few years ago. But we turn to James, and this is a very important uh, letter. Now, whenever you're studying your Bible, you you want to get a feel for the historical context of a letter. That is, who wrote it, if we know, and usually we do. To whom was he writing it? What were the circumstances in the writer's life? What were the circumstances in the hearer's lives? Because those sorts of, uh, that sort of information will help you understand the driving purpose of the letter. This letter is written by James. Now, there are several James in your Bible. You have, remember, uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. That's not this James. That was James, the disciple, the brother of John. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, who was another disciple. It's not that James. This James is actually the half-brother of Jesus Christ. You can look at Matthew chapter 13, I believe it's verse 55, and you'll find that Jesus had siblings. So Mary was a virgin until after Jesus was born, and then she uh, clearly had other children. So uh, she was uh, a mother of several half-siblings to Jesus. Half-siblings because Joseph was not Jesus' natural father, but he was the natural father, or someone was, of Mary's children. James was one of those. We'll find out later that Jude also was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So these men knew him well by nature. You'll remember in the gospel accounts that there, there was an occasion when Jesus was teaching and his family thought he had lost his mind. He was, he was crazy in the head. He was talking out of his head. So they went to rescue him because the gospel sounded so ridiculous and insane to them. James would have been one of those. So James did not understand Jesus until after the resurrection. But you'll notice in the first verse, he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. So James got it. Jesus is not just your blood brother. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. So it came clear to James. James became a very prominent figure in the early church from what we learn from Eusebius, the historian, from Josephus, another historian. Uh, and what we learn there is that he was uh, the virtual bishop of Jerusalem. So in the Jerusalem church, James was the... You need some volume, don't you? We're, Hello? There we go. There we go. Can you hear better now? Okay. 
So James was uh, the bishop, if you will, of Jerusalem. You'll pick this up particularly in Acts chapter 15 when Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem to report that this gospel, which they thought was just a Jewish gospel, has actually gone to the Gentiles. And you'll remember that was scandalous to Jewish Christians because Gentiles consider dirty, impossibly wicked people. How could God's promises ever be applied to these dogs, these Gentiles? But Paul and Barnabas came back reporting that that had happened. And you'll read in the account in Acts 15 that James actually took up for Paul and Barnabas and declared that God had indeed visited the Gentiles and the gospel was for the Gentiles. And he cited a text from Amos, uh, which was a famous a citation that he made, that this was the restoration of David's fallen tent. So James famously took an Old Testament text which everyone thought referred to Israel, the restoring of David's fallen tent, David's fallen Israel. And he applied it to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Well, of course, there are many other apostolic texts which do virtually the same thing, but, but that was a famous moment. So James was definitely convinced of the inclusion of the Gentiles and of the gospel of God's free grace. James, however, you'll find in this study over these next several weeks, sounds an awful lot like his blood brother. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of that will come out in what James has to say. So James had obviously been listening to his blood brother, half-brother, and certainly after he realized that Jesus was the Lord and the Messiah, he listened to him. And you'll see a lot of similarities between the teachings of James and the teachings of Jesus in the gospel. James is known as sort of the New Testament book of Proverbs. We don't have a book of Proverbs in the New Testament, but this is the closest thing to it. And it's, it uses the literary style of a diatribe. Sometimes James will be speaking to inanimate figures. He'll use analogies. But it's basically proverbial wisdom. If you remember some years ago, we studied the wisdom in the Old Testament. The proverbial wisdom, like in Proverbs, and then the wisdom that had to do with the ambiguities of life, like in Ecclesiastes and Job. This is more like Proverbs. And what James is doing is he's, he's saying to us, look, uh, the most important thing in your life is to know the Lord Jesus Christ, to know Him as the sovereign Lord over the universe, to know Him as the Messiah who has come to save His people. Once you come to know Him, your life and uh, your spiritual life doesn't end there. It begins there. And so often we think that, you know, once we make our profession of faith and make that heroic decision to join the church and make a public profession, whew, man, glad that's over. No, it's just started. And James is trying to say to us, You're, you've got to grow. As one of uh, my old uh, elder friends used to say, if you ain't growing, you ain't going. You know, we got to we got to grow in Christ. James is very concerned as a pastor, as an apostle, that the people of God who've come to know Jesus Christ begin to look like Him, begin to be transformed into His likeness. As Pat prayed a minute ago, it's not just, it's not just knowing the Bible, it's putting it into practice. So that's James' chief concern. And you'll even find when we get to chapter 2, 
that it looks as though he, he may even be contradicting Paul. He's not contradicting Paul. He's coming alongside Paul to be, understand, be sure we understand him. Paul says that we're saved through faith alone. That we're justified simply by putting our trust in Jesus Christ and all of His righteousness is imputed to us. James is going to show us, yeah, that's true, but when you're saved by faith, it's not a faith that is alone. It's a faith that's definitely accompanied with good works. You're justified simply by resting in Jesus, correct. But when you rest in Him, you begin to be transformed to be like Him. So the law that once condemned us now becomes our friend. And we seek to apply the law to our lives. This is James' great concern. And you'll see that he focuses on several issues which were crucial in his own day and I think in ours too. For example, how do we acquire wisdom and what is wisdom? We'll see that he even takes that up in the first chapter. What about your wealth, the use of your wealth, how you look at your wealth? Big issue. What about your tongue? and how you use that in speech. Very big issue. There's several issues like that that will even come up repetitively. You'll see in James' epistle. He's very concerned that the church not look like the world, but that we be different. And Lord knows how we need that message today. Let's look at these first 18 verses in chapter 1 and dive into the wisdom of God as it's revealed to us through the epistle of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man Fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's look at this very first verse, and you'll see that James does an excellent job of modeling something for us, and that is to live out your role. Know your role in life and live it out. First of all, with respect to God, know your role before God. James says this about himself. James, a servant, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James had prestige. I mean, you know, if, you're, if your half-brother ends up being a king, you know, what does that make you? <laughs> Makes you a prince, doesn't it? James, James had prestige. He, he, he grew up with Jesus Christ, for heaven's sakes. Knew him personally, was very close to him. But it, what does he call himself? He calls himself a servant. And he doesn't even hear tell us about his credentials with respect to his natural relationship to Jesus. Why? Because his real eternal relationship with Jesus is what counts. And it's the only thing that counts. And when James, with all of his knowledge and all of his blue blood lineage and connections, uh, looks at himself relative to Jesus, all he can call himself is a slave. The word here is the word for slave, doulos. He says, I'm a slave of God. I'm a slave of my half-brother. <laughs> you know, in weddings, when, the, when we're rehearsing on Friday nights, I always tell the bride, look, honey, if you drop something, you're not going down. The queen doesn't go down for anything. I said, your sister standing right here is your abject slave tomorrow. And her sister kind of goes, yeah. especially if it's an older sister. I've never been my younger sister's slave, you know. And so it's the same way with James. Here's a half-brother. You know how brothers fight and so on and have they're all the reasons in the world to know why their brother is not so great. They don't appreciate anybody else saying it, but they have their own critique. James says, I'm a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suggest if James says it, you ought to say it too. That's your role. When you're a slave, you have one concern. That's pleasing the master. Get your relationship with God straight. He is the sovereign king over everything in your life. He's calling all the shots. Your only task is to do what he wants. It's his pleasure, his desire, his will that matters. That's the only thing that matters. Get it straight. You're a slave. Now, having... Become a slave of God, of course, He bestows upon you the, the great honor of being His child. So you end up being a son of God. So we know this. We know that He's exalted us. But it's both and. Whatever He gives us is to His glory and honor. But we are His slaves. And we want to be sure that we look at our life today that way. We go out of here as slaves, happy slaves of God. Slaves who know that we're going to inherit the whole blooming thing. So we are under His Lordship. We are His bondsmen. We are completely owned by Him. And not only does He say God, but He says the Lord Jesus Christ. And here He's making a clear statement that that is God. The only God who is is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All other gods are substitute gods. They're false gods. They're figments of people's imagination. The God who made the heavens and earth is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
James puts their names together here. Jesus is Lord. Okay, look secondly at what he says in verse 1b. He speaks about the church. So he's living out his role to the church. And his role is to be a servant to the church, to the 12 tribes in the diaspora or the dispersion. Greetings. Now we know the dispersion is a word that's often used of Jewish folks because, of course, when they were taken into exile in Babylon, they were called the diaspora or the dispersion. And then, of course, at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, which comes later than this, this seems to be in the, in the mid-40s AD, this letter. So this is before the destruction of Jerusalem, but they've been called the diaspora ever since, up until 1948. And then the diaspora, the Jewish diaspora, begins to gather again in Israel. But we know that we ourselves as Gentiles, that which would be most of us in the room, are called the dispersion because our home is the new Jerusalem in heaven and we've been dispersed to all the nations. So in that sense, we're all in the dispersion among many uh, uh, pluralistic nations. But here it seems he's speaking especially to Jewish people because he, he says the 12 tribes, doesn't he? So James, who is Jewish, whose ministry seemed primarily to be to Jewish people just as Paul's primary ministry seemed to be to Gentile people, James is speaking here primarily to Jewish Christians. And he's saying to them, basically, you've heard of the gospel of God's free grace. It was always that way. You misunderstood the Old Testament. You thought it was by law. No, it's always been by faith and by the grace of God. But that doesn't mean that we don't give heed to Christian wisdom and to the law of God. So many of the things that you learn from your parents are true and should be put into practice. It's both and, not either or. That's what James is going to try to teach these Jewish converts. You know, sometimes if you grew up in a strict home, like many of these Jews did, when they hear of the gospel of grace, they're so relieved to be out from under moralism and legalism, they just want to get rid of the law altogether. And I know some Christians that way who grew up in strict Christian homes. And when they hear that God saves rascals, that Jesus died for drunkards and prostitutes and whoremongers and so on, they just rejoice and that God saves you in spite of yourself. They just rejoice and say, well, forget the law. James is saying, look, don't forget the law. Let's bring it back in in a different way than you were looking at it before. The way you were looking at it before is that God would love you more if you kept the law more obediently or that you might have a better chance of heaven if you keep the law. What you know now is that because God does love you and you are going to heaven, out of gratitude, you keep the law. So you still have the law, but you're looking at it very differently than you did before, before you knew that Jesus Christ loves sinners and saves them in spite of their own moral performance. So he's a servant to the church. And you'll find the Apostle Paul says the same thing about himself. He describes himself as a servant of the church. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 5. We preach not ourselves... But Jesus Christ is Lord, says the Apostle Paul, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So part of Paul's gospel was that the apostles were servants of the people of God. Do you see yourself that way? I know a woman who, who uh, I greatly admire, and she said one time, you always, you'll always know if you have the heart of a servant by how you react when you're treated like one. 
do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know who I am? You know, those kinds of reactions. How, you know, how demeaning that you just treat me like some insignificant servant. Yeah, huh? Yeah. You'll know if you have the heart of a servant when you observe how you react when you're treated like one. If you're treated like one, don't be surprised because that's who you are. You're a, you're a butler, if you will, in the house of God. So let's just do our job well. Secondly, notice that in our growth, it, it does begin with knowing who you are in Christ. You're His servant. You're Christ's brother. You're God's child. But we move to this idea of afflictions and trials. And there are so many ways that we respond to trials. And in verses 2 through 4 and verse 12, we learn to rejoice in our trials. Now, there are many ways that we respond. Uh, and I've probably tried all of these. When trials and afflictions come, sometimes we just deny them. We just pretend that they're not there. You have one like that? Just get it out of your mind. Just don't even, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to pray about it. I don't want to be reminded of it. I'm just going to go into denial. And I, you know, men are classically wonderful categorizers, you know. Uh, we can just think on one thing, and that's about all we can do anyway. You know, women can think of four things at one time. We can't do that. We've got to think of one thing at a time. And sometimes we decide to think about nothing. You know about the famous nothing box with men, you know. Women are told, when you ask your husband what he's thinking about and he says nothing, you get mad because you think he's not telling you the truth. The fact is, he's actually thinking about nothing. Uh, so men can categorize everything else out and really think about nothing. And it's called the nothing box. You know, just put it in the nothing box. You nothing. So your wife gets mad, so I suggest you make up something. Tell her you're thinking about something because she doesn't believe that you can actually think about nothing. It's, uh, it's, it's impossible for a woman to conceive of that. So make up something and tell her you're thinking about it. Because actually, when you make it up, you are thinking about it. So that's, it's not a lie. So, but, <laughs> but men will categorize and they just, they'll just box it out. They just box it out. Now, sometimes that's not a bad thing to do. If you're in warfare, you're in the emergency room treating somebody, or, you know, you've got to box everything out and stick to business. Uh, but it's, that's not healthy if you're going day after day after day with a significant issue in your life that's afflicting you and you just don't deal with it at all. It's called denial. Secondly, sometimes we just complain. Just, just moan and complain and gripe. Uh, and sometimes we just say, well, you know, I guess God doesn't love me very much. Sure doesn't love me as much as, as this guy. Look, he's doing so well and everything's going great for him. Look at me. So we just, we just complain. Or self-pity. That's a good one. I've done all of these. I've become quite a specialist in them. So if any of you don't know how to do any of these, I can explain it to you. But we have all of our approaches to affliction. Sometimes we just get mad. You know, when afflictions come, we're just going to hit it hard. We're going to blame somebody else uh, when afflictions come. That, that's a good one. That's, that's probably my favorite uh, is blame shifting. But here's what James is saying. And, of course, it's the same message you get with the Apostle Paul, the same message you get from Brother Jesus, and that is to rejoice. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. That is completely joy. Count it pure joy, no exception, when you meet trials. Now, the Stoic philosophers of Jesus' day, kind of like the Buddhists of our own day, 
would just teach you to stay calm, not to get upset, to have an even temper, to just be stoic about it, stiff upper lip. There's some virtue in that, I suppose, especially civic virtue. Be a lot better than the kind of responses we have today in public. But the Christian goes way beyond that. Ours is not just a matter of tolerating afflictions or taking them calmly or being under control with our emotions. It's actually joy. You say, really? Rejoice? Yes, count it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Why, you say? Well, glad you asked. And James is here to answer all your questions. And look what he tells you. He says, secondly, it's always, it's all various kinds of trials. Why? Look, thirdly, gratefully, for you know that the testing of your faith actually produces something. It's productive. It's not counterproductive. Just like Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he says that our afflictions are achieving something. Do you realize that God has ordained all of your sufferings, every one of them? The one that you thought was so bad that, you, that no deity that has any compassion whatsoever would ever think about doing that one to you. That too. And I don't say that irreverently or rightly. What I'm saying to you is, every, He loves you so much that every single thing in your life has been put there for a purpose to achieve something in you. He is working with you. He's working for you. He's working through you. He's working in you. He's accomplishing something. There's something He wants out of you. It's for your good. He's making you the best man you could possibly be beyond your wildest dreams of what you could ever be. And He's doing it partially through your afflictions. The afflictions of your life are a very important part of your spiritual development. It's important to read the Bible. It's important to come to Amen Bible study. It's important to pray. It's important to worship. But gentlemen, it's extremely important that you understand how to use the afflictions in your life. That probably has more impact than our Bible study this morning, is if you learn how to take afflictions and make them productive in your life. You say, well, productive of what? What does it produce? What does it achieve? Well, look what he says. It produces steadfastness. When you get afflicted, it actually makes you tougher. Uh, when you, if you haven't been uh, exercising for a while and then you start running, you'll find you get a few blisters here, there, and the other place. You've forgotten. Your feet got soft. You're afflicted. They burn. They hurt. You limp now when you walk. But in about two weeks, you'll have what we call calluses. So you get thicker skin. Now you're able to run greater distances with no pain, no let up. Gentlemen, He's doing the same thing in your soul. Not to make it hardened, but to make it tougher. And that's what your afflictions are accomplishing for you when you turn to Him. If you're His child, He's using all of these things. Some of you will say, why does He keep afflicting me? You really want an answer to that? It's, you're just like 
our children who might ask, Daddy, why do you keep disciplining me? Do you really want an answer to that? So here it is. We are being afflicted because God knows exactly what we need and where we need help to strengthen our faith. He's increasing our steadfastness. And what does that do? That makes you a man. Or to put it in James's words, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's called maturity. So look at the sequence. Testing leads to steadfastness, which leads to maturity. Or as we sang in our hymn a moment ago, when through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, but I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. Your deepest distress. I'll sanctify it to you. I'll make it useful in your spiritual life. I'll make you a mature man through these afflictions. Now, the world is afflicted too, but it does not necessarily produce the maturity that James is talking about. In fact, it doesn't. It may produce a certain type of toughness. It is true that afflictions toughen everybody, but it produces a hardened toughness, not a soft toughness, toughness, not a gentle toughness, not a worshiping toughness, not a kind and giving and generous toughness. But the afflictions in Christ for His children produces a generous, kind toughness in us. It makes us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, who was as tough as nails and tender as a lamb. And that's what a real man is. He's tough as nails and he's tender as a lamb. So James is saying, this is what's being accomplished in you. And Paul puts it this way. He says, our afflictions are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory, which far surpasses our sufferings. So actually, it's achieving something in this life, and your afflictions are achieving something in the next life as well. It's preparing you now for the glory that will rest upon you later. All of that's happening because we are children of God. We are brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So rejoice in your trials completely. Rejoice in them always, regardless of what direction they come. If it's cancer, we're all deeply saddened by that. We know that you're saddened by it. But there has to be this inner joy that's cultivated. God is doing something in your life. When you lose a loved one, which is extremely difficult, of course, that produces great sorrow. But as Paul says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have hope. What's the hope? That body of the believing deceased is going to come roaring out of the ground as a resurrected saint, and you're going to be with them forever. It increases our hope when we suffer those kinds of afflictions and our loved ones in Christ leave us. It increases our hope. I'm finding that I've, I'm getting more and more friends in heaven. You know? If, if, after a while, you're trying to decide, do I want to be with the few friends I have here or the many friends I have up there? It, 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 you, know, you end up thinking, well, I think I'm ready to go on. My, all my friends are up there. It increases your hope when you go through these afflictions. I'm not saying I'm there yet. I think I've got more here, but I've got a bunch of them up there. It's, it's probably getting close to a tie right now at 65 years of age. So we, we rejoice gratefully because of what our afflictions are producing in us. And the writer of Hebrews, I've listed that there in chapter 12, 
He says, don't you know you're, you are, you're the sons of God? And don't you remember how your father used to discipline you? And it was for your good? Do you think that if God is your real father that he won't discipline you? Are you not a bastard if you're not disciplined? Are you not illegitimate, he says? He says, no, you're the legitimate children of God. You should expect that being as big a sinner as you are, it's going to take some discipline from God to help shape you into the person he wants you to be. So submit yourself to the government and discipline of God in your life. You, you can find men who really miss the boat on this all over the place when they're in lively, believing churches that believe in a mutual accountability. They start to go off the rails in their moral life. Their church faithfully, lovingly confronts them, tries to restore them. And what do they do? They just flee. They flee the discipline of mutually accountable relationships. I see it over and over and over again. And so what? They're just escaping the discipline of their afflictions. They're acting like unbelievers who never really get steadfastness and maturity out of their afflictions. But James says, rejoice completely, always, and gratefully. And then in verse 12, rejoice confidently because the man who remains steadfast under trial is blessed. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Paul says of himself that he said, I've, I've fought the good fight. I've, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And he says, not only for me, but for all who have longed for his appearing. So those who are waiting on him, who know he's coming back, who are running the race all the way to the end, they're going to receive a crown. It's the, it's the victory crown of winning a race. You're going to be crowned the great victors of the universe at the end of the day. And it will be through our afflictions that God got us there safely. And we'll look back at our afflictions and say how kind He was to us. Now the Lord Jesus Christ did the same thing. We're told it once again in Hebrews 12. For the joy set before Him, the joy, He endured the cross and scorned its shame. He took on the cross not because of his own sins or his own need to be afflicted, but for us. And he did it with joy because he looked ahead to the great reward. So when you believe the Bible, you know that God is using the most painful things in your life to move you forward toward the day of great reward, which you don't deserve, but which he's going to give you anyway. That's the Christian faith, gentlemen. And that's the reason that it is always characterized by joy. Now, move to verses 5 through 8. And thirdly, we see, not only do we clarify our role and live it out, not only do we rejoice in our trials, but we cast off our doubts. We cast off our doubts. Now, first of all, look at the reward of faith. It comes by simply asking Him, you get the reward of, of just trusting in Him, and that trust is expressed in simply asking Him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to Him. Let's take a moment and look at this verse. We're talking here about wisdom, about the need for it, about how we can obtain it, we first of all want to ask ourselves, what is wisdom? Well, people have defined this in different ways. Some say that wisdom is the ability to accomplish good ends 
through good means. The ability to accomplish good ends through good means. Now, when we were studying the Old Testament uh, wisdom literature some years ago, you'll remember that. We talked about wisdom being the ability to project outcomes, long-term outcomes from immediate behaviors. If you go to a, for example, you go to someone for business consulting, what, what, what do they usually bring to you besides objectivity? They get outside your own, uh, your own realm, which is helpful. But they have an ability to, to project likely outcomes from short-term decisions. Uh, and that's what you want is long-term profitability, long-term health in your marriage or your family. Long-term results is what you want. And a wise person, the reason you go probably and ask for advice is because you think they're able to see the outcomes. And so a, a person who can help you is a person who studies the Bible, for example, who has kind of a framework of what is good and maybe... Uh, Versed, well-versed in the Proverbs and in the teachings of Jesus, but you also will go to someone for advice because maybe they've seen this pattern before, maybe they've been there before, maybe they're older, maybe they're 15 years ahead of you, and they would have seen occasions like this and, and had some longitudinal observations of how things work out when you go that direction. For example, if you're looking for advice in parenting, you might be inclined to go to someone who's grandparenting. Oh, yeah, I remember that stage. And when we did this, you know, five years later, it had this effect on the kids. So now that I look back on it, I think I would have done this instead of that. And you appreciate that kind of advice. It's that what you're looking for is wisdom. How do I project what I can't see yet? And this is beyond the law. The law gives you a structure of what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. Wisdom gives you what's, what's wise. You know, it's, it's a finer skill that's required. So, for example, with Solomon, you remember he had the two women who came battling over who, whose child this was. Well, what does the law of God say about that? Well, it doesn't. It doesn't give you the answer. Solomon was trying to make a decision and didn't know which woman to give the child to. He needs wisdom to figure out, how am I going to discern which of these two women is the mother? So he says, okay, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll split the child in half and give half to each. And woman, one woman said, okay. And the other said, no, 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 let her have the, have the child. And Solomon said, that's the mother. See, that, that, that's called wisdom. <laughs> and there are some people who are very gifted in that. And let me tell you the ones who are. Look at the text. They're the ones who ask. The ones who keep going to God and asking for that kind of discernment. They have a regular conversation with Him about wisdom. They are looking at the world from God-centered perspective. They're looking with God-centered spectacles. They're seeing everything from God's perspective and talking to Him about it. They're learning from their own afflictions. They're applying wisdom to their own lives. They're in full repentance, genuine repentance in their lives. Therefore, everything they're seeing and learning, they put into this context called wisdom, and they know how to ask Him for it. And look what it said here about those who ask. If any of you, any, 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 those of you who have your Ph.D. and those of you who didn't finish high school, any, those of you who have 
140 IQ, and we have some in this room, and some of you who may be just a little below average. Any who asks, who lacks wisdom and asks will receive it. You see it's applied to everybody? And then he said, let him ask God who gives generously. That his, he'll give abundantly to you when you ask. He'll give you more than you even thought you could receive. He'll enable you to see things and to make judgments that go beyond anything you imagined. And he gives it to all. He gives to all. So anyone can ask him. And everyone receives. And how does he receive, give? He gives without reproach. So he doesn't give it to you and say, there, you stupid little idiot. You should have known that in the first place. He doesn't do that. He's without reproach, without any lessening of his love for you. It, it actually, if anything, makes you and him closer. So he gives without reproach, and it will be given to him. So anybody, regardless of their educational credentials, regardless of their IQ, regardless of the length of their Christian experience, if anyone will ask, he gives generously without reproach, and he gives it to all. So the promise is absolutely extraordinary. Um, J.A. Motier, one of the commentaries on James, commentators on James, says that wisdom opens the eyes both to the glories of heaven and to the hollowness of earth. Wisdom is simply living in the light of reality. Wisdom is the ability to make decisions in view of the real world that we live in and in view of the revealed will of God and in view of likely outcomes from decisions made in the short run. That's what wisdom is. We all desperately need it. So the reward of faith is if you simply ask, you will receive. But now notice in verses uh, uh, 6, 7, and 8, the dangers of doubt. This is what can mess you up in your attempt to live the wise life. Let him ask in faith, or that is, ask him, ask him simply. So the first point would be simply ask him, and the second one is ask him simply. That is, ask him with a single motive. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. Now let's stop for just a minute. Some of you know that we've discussed doubt here before in years past. And we've said there are a couple ways to look at doubt. One is to look at it as an intellectual phenomenon, which is inevitable. I want to describe that for a moment. The other is to look at it morally. And James is talking about the moral aspect of doubt. But let's talk for a moment about intellectual doubt. Uh, as Oz Guinness says in his book of maybe 30 years ago uh, about doubt, uh, and the title is um, In Two Minds, which makes sense, doesn't it? Because that's what James is saying, you're double-minded. And the title of Oz Guinness's book is In Two Minds. Uh, it may have been republished under another title. But basically, here's his point. He's, Guinness says rightly, I think, anytime you try to believe something, especially a theory of some sort, it's always attended with intellectual doubt. Those of you who have a scientific background, think of how you're looking at evidence in the laboratory. You're taking the evidence and trying to project a theory that fits the evidence. And of course, you have all kinds of doubt about your theory. 
You've got, that, that's important that you have doubt. You're asking questions. You're coming at it. You find yourself analyzing cynically. Could this theory really comprehend all the evidence that's there? Is there any piece of evidence that's an outlier that doesn't fit the theory? You're asking all kinds of questions. That's called intellectual doubt. So when you're trying to believe something you can't see, namely the Lordship of Jesus Christ, has anyone here physically seen Him? Has anyone here physically touched Him? No. But you're relying upon the testimony of other men who have. And you're looking at the evidence and trying to say, is this viable? Is it real? And when you're looking at examining the evidence, of course, that intellectual doubt is there. And you say, are these men, for example, you ask a question, are these men reliable? Is there any testimony to these men's reliability? Were these men the only ones that saw him? Did they see him when they were all together in a hyped up, enthusiastic, emotional state? Or did they see him under individual circumstances when they were surprised and were, the last thing they were expecting was a resurrected Jesus? You're asking all kinds of questions. Are there any alternative theories to put all this evidence together until so you, you read the other theories? I've done all those things. Why? Because of intellectual doubt. You're always checking your theories to see if it's the best theory that puts together the evidence. Now, in this case, of course, when we're dealing with spiritual things, there is a, a certainty that comes. It's not an absolute philosophical certainty. It's a certainty of reliable evidence, but it's overwhelmingly empowered by the testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual matter, and God Himself gives us the certainty. It's His gift to us. He gives us certainty about reality. And those who don't have the Spirit are always questioning whether reality is reality. But we know that reality is reality because of the gift of the Spirit in our lives. But intellectual doubt always accompanies anything you're trying to believe. So when you have those kinds of doubts, don't think that you're less of a believer. That's the way the mind thinks when we're proving something to ourselves or to other people. What James is talking about is moral doubt. It's doubting the character of God. It's doubting the trustworthiness of His promises. It's doubting the integrity of His Word when all the evidence is in and when all the theories have been tried and when the only reasonable answer really in a world of reality is what the Bible is teaching you and you're still doubting. Why? Because you don't want to trust Him. It's a moral issue. And this is what James is talking about. And he says, Let him ask in faith, faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Is not the perfect illustration when, when Peter saw Jesus walking on the water? And he goes, wow, that's really something. I'd like to do that too. <laughs> so Jesus says, come. And Peter was bold enough to, that, that first step was the boldest one. Put your weight on a wave? And he did. And he started to walk. And then he started to look around. And he noticed how violent the storm was. And he felt the wind in his face. And he began to doubt that Jesus could keep him afloat in a storm like that. And he began to sink until he put his eyes on Jesus again. And gentlemen, when you start looking at the storm instead of looking at the deity and looking at his grace for you, you begin to sink. You're a double-minded man. 
you're more impressed with the power of the storm than you are the power of God. And James is saying he'll give you wisdom if you just trust him. You trust him and ask him. And here's how we can tell that you trust him, that you put into practice the answer he gives you. You don't just get the answer to be a better Bible student. You get the answer to be a transformed man. You put that into practice, that enlarges your wisdom. Now you're able to put more things into practice. It's a cumulative issue of acquiring wisdom. You put into practice what you have, and Jesus says more will be given. To him who has, more will be given. He's talking about the Word. He's talking about the wisdom. So look to him without these moral doubts. Trust him. Ask him, and he will give you the guidance and the wisdom you need. Now, uh, fourthly, look at verses 9 through 11. And here he speaks briefly about material possessions. And he says, speaking of wisdom, we got to get this straight. Those of you who are poor, who don't own much, you think that you're at the bottom of the barrel. You think that in the church, you're just where the world puts you which is at the bottom of the pyramid. And these people who own businesses, who've been very financially successful, who are driving the, the nicer cars and living in the bigger houses, you think they're at the top of the pyramid. That's utter foolishness James is showing us. He says when you get wisdom, you see things very differently. And look what he says. First of all, let's talk about poverty. And he shows us that poverty equals exaltation. Those of you who are poor, who don't own much, who live in small apartments, who drive an old car, who don't seem to be making it uh, very, in a very big way, realize you're being exalted. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The temptations of poverty are to be ashamed because you don't own much or because you haven't been successful. It's, it's to be in despair. It's to be disheartened. It's to be discontent. It's to be afraid. It's to steal from other people. It's to feel like you have an entitlement to have as much as everybody else. You're tempted to all kinds of things when you're poor. And James is saying, no, boast in your exaltation. What's he talking about? Exaltation? Two things. Remember Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. But in the Lucan version of that, maybe an, another occasion, he just simply says, blessed are the poor. We always think that we're blessed when we have a lot in the bank. Oh, I'm blessed. You know what? Jesus was teaching that you're actually blessed when you don't have much in the, in the account. You know why? You usually talk to him a little bit more. Your relationship's a little bit closer. You're getting to know a little bit more of him. You may not have the money that others have, but you have more of him, and that's what a blessed man has, is more of Christ. And sometimes it's our poverty, our bankruptcies, our financial straits that lead us into dependent, more dependence upon Him. So if you're poor, if you're struggling with paying your bills, realize you're exalted. Why? He's, he's getting close to you. That's the reason you read over and over in the Scriptures. It, it looks like Jesus has favorites, to be honest with you. And it looks like His favorites are the poor. Now, I don't believe that. I mean, I, I know that He loves rich people. Consider... His ministry to Zacchaeus, his ministry to the rich young ruler, his ministry to the politically powerful. He was preaching to them all the time too. But mostly it was with the poor. That's who he hung out with. So if, if you're less privileged than some other people, you're Jesus' kind of people. I mean, you'd be the ones he'd be hanging out with. 
So realize you're ex exalted in some ways in this life, but ultimately in the next life. Uh, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. So He's preparing you for crowns to be placed upon your heads later. Now those of you who are wealthy, which we have to admit in this room in East Memphis, in the United States of America, the richest nation in the history of the world, that most of us uh, are very wealthy people. If you make $50,000 per year, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Enough said. So we're talking mostly about wealthy people here. And he says to wealthy people, your wealth equals humiliation. And you thought your wealth was defining you as a successful person. You thought your wealth was going to provide for you the contentment and the freedom that you, that, to allow you to enjoy human privileges. And James is saying, you're missing it. The rich should boast in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Over and over again, the Bible is teaching us that riches pass away. It's, it's, it's just a fantasy that this is going to rescue you to the end. Uh, you know, they're, as they say, they're, have you ever seen a Hertz with a U-Haul behind it? You know, taking all this stuff, you know, the most, your most precious pieces of furniture and maybe a vault full of all your money that you saved up coming right behind you, right to the grave. Does that do you any good? None at all. You're going to lose it all. You're going to hand it over to other people who will probably squander it. So what's, what's the big deal? Then lastly, verses 13 through 16, resist your temptations. Resist your temptations. Here we have some very important principles, and in two minutes let me try to uh, line them out. First of all, in verse 13 he says, when you're tempted, don't blame God. In James's day, the pagans would have blamed fate, that the gods just brought fate upon them. It wasn't their fault. But the Bible teaches us clearly in Habakkuk, God's eyes are too pure to look upon iniquity and He cannot tolerate wrong. He'll have nothing to do with darkness. He has nothing to do with evil except to manage it. Evil did not come from Him. He controls it, but He did not create it. I know that's a mystery, but it's the only way to explain the biblical testimony. Don't blame God when you're tempted. Oh, you know, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have looked at that pornography, but God just right across my video screen just put this naked woman, so I hit click to this or whatever it is to get you there, and you're blaming him and his providence. How wicked. Um, secondly, take responsibility, verses 14 through 16. Each person is tempted when this happens. First of all, you're lured and enticed by your own desire. It's not God, it's your lusts. Then your desire mates with the external temptation. So you have the external temptation, you have the desire in here, they mate and create something called sin. That's where sin comes from, when the desires of your own flesh, your own lust, match with the external temptation, and that issues forth in sin, which he says eventually leads to death. Now lastly, notice what he says in verse 17, 18, look to God, every good and perfect gift, including your afflictions, come from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do you see what he's saying? His will in bringing us into this life and redeeming us is to make us the first fruits of a mighty harvest that he's gathering for himself. You are being changed into his likeness by his ordination, by the power of his word and the power of his spirit. That's the drama of your life. It's the conformity ever increasingly to the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. James' greatest glory is not that he was the half-brother of Jesus. Not now that he's even the slave of Jesus. His greatest glory is that he shall be like the Lord Jesus Christ on the day that is coming. And that's the reward that waits everyone who patiently seeks wisdom from him, that we may live a life for him, that we may undergo the afflictions that shape us into his likeness, and so that one day we may see him face to face. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this amazing epistle and ask that as these weeks go by, we may understand it more and more. And not only that, but put it into practice for your everlasting glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.